0: passage day is from 1 Samuel chapter 16 verses 14 through 23. It says, "Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well." So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehem who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, laden with bread, and a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly and became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lair and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him.
1: Amen. May you be blessed by the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. We've begun a series in First uh, Samuel um, about the life of David. It's the study of the life of David. And, and the tagline is, uh, a, a people of God after the heart of God. And it's said about David, he was a man after God's own heart. And so as I've been preparing this uh, sermon series for months, I, I kept going back to the idea, what would it look like for us, the church, to be a people of God that went after the heart of God. And we're going to look at week by week of what that looks like. How do we become the church of God to become more like Him and to have a heart like His? And just as a way of recap, last week we started in First Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel chapter 16 is where God anoints David to be the king. What had happened was King Saul, that the the people of God wanted a king, and so they went after and they found Saul, and Saul was head and shoulders, it says, above every other man in the kingdom. And and the people of God looked at his stature and looked at his outward appearance and said, that's our guy, that's who we want to be king, he can lead us and he can lead us well. And Saul began to lead the people, and then there's this moment, you can read in chapter 14 and 15, where Saul was told by God, hey, there's some enemies coming, and I want you to kill all of them. Kill everything. Let there be nothing left of that kingdom. And then Saul lost his mind. Saul decided what was best for the people wasn't what was best, what God had for them. And he said, hey, God didn't really mean for us to kill everything. Maybe he wanted us to keep the good stuff for ourselves. I, I, that's a side note, but think about how many times God's called us to do something, and man, it looks hard, and it looks impossible, and we think to ourselves, man, God didn't really mean that. We'll take their easier, softer way, and it always ends in disaster. What ended in disaster for King Saul? And Saul did not obey God, and the words of God, and then we read where it says in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that that Samuel had gone to Saul and said, God is not happy with you. And he says this, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. And that's where we pick up in 16, that God goes to Samuel and says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I've got a king that I am going to provide for myself now th- samuel get up and go and go and anoint the one that i tell you to anoint and so samuel rises and goes and goes to bethlehem and he goes to jesse and then seven men come before jesse and Je- and, and samuel says man that that has to be the guy he's he looks the part all seven of the sons pass, and each one of the sons, it said that Samuel thought he was the guy, he would be the next king. But yet there's this verse in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at on his appearance or on his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. And we looked at last week that when God looks on us, he doesn't see our heart, but he sees the heart that he's already placed in us, what it tells us in Ezekiel. I will make a new covenant with you, and I'll take your heart of stone out, and I'll put a heart of flesh in. And so what God saw in David was a man after whose heart? God's heart. And so Samuel is told that he says to Jesse, Are these all your sons? No. And it says that the youngest one, the Hebrew word for youngest means the runt. Now, y'all are way more uh, educated farmers than I'll ever be. But, But the runt is not what you want when you go and you look at, like, the litter box. Like, when you're going to sell animals, nobody really wants the runt, right? Well, that's what God chose, the runt. And so now, where do we leave David? In chapter 16, verse 13. He's anointed. Samuel whispers into his ears, God has chosen you to be the king over all of Israel, the most mighty nation that there is. And yet, where do we find young David? In verse 14. I don't know about you, But I know if I was David, I probably would not have gone back to where David went back to. But we find David, and we'll see in this passage, he goes back to what? Tending the sheep. And so here's David. Here's the the crux of the whole story of 1 Samuel, of the life of David, is found in this passage. So David is out in the fields, and now it says in verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Think think about that verse for a moment. That the Spirit of God departed Saul. And then God sent a harmful spirit to Saul. Now, what that doesn't mean is that Saul lost his salvation. That's not what it means. Most likely, Saul wasn't a believer to begin with. But what it meant is the favor of God, the spirit, God's spirit, God's favor departed Saul. You see, we talked last week. If Saul had done one thing, the whole story would have changed, I I believe. It's repentance. Saul never repented of disobeying God. God. And I wonder for us today, if we would say the same way, man, the Spirit of God has left me and there's a spirit of torment on me, I would say it may have to do with your lack of repentance. And God may be using that spirit, that harmful spirit, to bring you to repentance. And so Saul is in his kingdom and the torment of God is upon him and he can't find relief he can't find sleep many people many of the scholars believe he had some form of clinical depression and so he's just wandering around the king kingdom looking for relief and his servants come to him. This is what the text says. The servants come to him, and they look at him, they look at him in his distress and say, Man, we've got to help this guy. And the servants do what so many of us do. They look for external soothing rather than internal repentance. And so the, the servants say to Saul, Hey, hey, we need to soothe your soul. And it says that these servants come and they say to Saul, hey, Saul, I know how to soothe your soul. We got to get some music in the house. There's nothing like music that soothes the soul. I won't sing the song, but... Right? Amen? Like anyone like, man, they're having a bad day. Throw on some songs. Well, that's what's happening with Saul. These guys look at Saul. They look at him in his depression and his anxiety and they say, man, we got to help this guy out. And one little... Servant says, I know a guy, David. And it says in verse 17 and 18 who David was. He was skilled with playing music. Saul called him and said, Hey, bring that young man to me that I might find rest for my soul. And it says in the latter verse, the last verse, that every time the harmful spirit came upon Saul that David would come and play the music and then Saul would find relief. And so that's the backdrop of the passage this morning. But what I really want to look at this morning is young David. That God was preparing young David for his ministry to be the king of Israel remember that David got anointed as king and he goes back to the fields and God in the fields begins to prepare him we know this to be true for all of us says this in Philippians verse six of chapter one I am sure this Paul says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ and I wonder for David if when he went back out to the pasture He wondered, how is God ever going to take me from the pasture to the kingdom? See, that's not a direct line you and I wouldn't put together. Hey, pasture equals kingdom. But that's where God works in us, is in the pasture. And so often we don't want to be in the pasture, we want to be in the kingdom. And so we'll take shortcuts, we'll do manipulation... But God works in the pasture. And I believe God works, and we see in this text, four ways that God works in the pasture. The first one we see is in verse 19. Therefore Saul sent the messenger to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son who what? Is with the sheep. The first thing that we see is David spent a life in the pasture of solitude. There's nobody in the pasture. Right? It's just David and a herd of sheep. He was alone in the pasture. I don't know about you, but how many of us love to be alone? No music. No book to read, just quiet with you and God and your thoughts. Anyone like that? And so many of us would say, man, I really don't like solitude. We like isolation, but not solitude. There was a study done in the UK several years ago that did a study on solitude. And so they brought this group of men and a group of women in and said to this group of men and women, hey, for the next 15 minutes, you're going to sit in this room with nothing, just you and your thoughts and your feelings. And then they noticed afterwards that these men would, and women would try to be busy with nothing. And so they thought to themselves, well, what can we do differently? And so they said, ah, we'll do this. We'll put this part into the experiment." So, there's nothing in this room except one small device that would give off an electric shock. And they would say to the people, hey, sit with yourselves and don't do anything. Or, if you'd rather not do anything, just shock yourself. Not a lethal dose, just shock yourself. Now, we laugh at that, but you know what the study showed? They shocked themselves. They would rather take a shock from this device than they would sit for 15 minutes with quietness. They threw one of the guys out because he, had, uh, as he was going along, he had shocked themselves, take a guess, 190 times in 15 minutes. Shocking, right? shocked himself that many times because he could not sit with himself, his thoughts, his feelings with God. And yet we see in the pasture, God uses solitude. This is the place that was most valuable to David, was all alone, on a hillside, all by himself. You see, we see this in the life of Christ over and over and over again. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says that Christ would rise early in the morning and He would go to a dark place. And He departed and went to a, a desolate place or a solitude place. And He would get before God and just pray. We see that again in Luke chapter 4, verse 42. Over and over and over again, in the Word of God, we see how God uses people, but He uses them where? In crafts them where in a place of solitude one writer says this he says loneliness is inward emptiness but solitude is inward fulfillment and i just wonder for us church do we get alone with god No Bible. Hear what I said, no Bible. Bible can be a distraction. No music, no sermon, no, no commentary, no other great book. Just you out in a field sitting alone with God. How often do we do that? But we see David spent most of his time alone on a hillside with just him and god the second place that we see david and how god works in the pasture is through secrecy now that's different than solitude you may be saying well how is it different How is secrecy and solitude? God uses the obscure places where where no one is and no one's going to be to speak to his children. The secret places. Him in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of sheep where nobody really saw except maybe that one individual that took notice of David on the hillside and said, I saw a guy in a pasture that God could use for you, Saul. You see, it was in the place of secrecy and solitude that God taught David humility. You you see, tending to sheep was not the ideal position. That was like the lowest of the low of the low jobs. That's not like a job you want. You you don't come out of college and say, think to yourself, man, I want to go 10 sheep. But that's where God used David. Out of the limelight. Remember what David had just heard. I'm going to be the king. How is God going to use me to be the king if I'm sitting in the place of nowhere where nobody sees me? But yet we see David did not take a shortcut to get into the palace. To get into the kingdom. To find his way to be the king. He trusted God. That God was accomplished. What God had told him that God was going to do in him. Was, was going to make him the king. He learned great humility on that hillside. He learned great perseverance. On that hillside. He learned great loyalty. Loyalty. Remember, we saw that in the last week that Jesse said to Samuel, I've got a loyal son that's tending the flock. He's out there. I know he's out there. And then we see he was taught great obedience. And I wonder for us, church, how much we want to be in the limelight. And we don't want to be in the obscure places. That we want people to take notice of us and give us attention and, and give us accolades and give us job promotions. And what yet, where does God tend to work? In the obscure places. In the pasture. In the wilderness. You look at all, well, most of the characters of the Old Testament. Most of the men of God in the Old Testament, we see that God worked with them in the pasture he worked with Noah in the pasture building an ark by himself we see that God worked with Abraham when he left his home to become a a, a man of many nations that he wandered around the wilderness we see that God used and worked in Jacob when he worked the fields by himself for 14 years because the first seven he got gypped because he thought he's going to marry somebody and the dad said Nah, I'm just kidding and so for the next seven years, 14 years, he worked alone in the wilderness. We see that God did this with Moses. Remember, Moses was in the place of position. He was the son of the, the, the Pharaoh, And he wanders on and sees and sees his people getting beat, and he kills somebody, and then he flees for his life. And for 40 years, he's wandering where? In the wilderness. By himself. Nobody took notice of him. We see that with Joseph when he was sold into slavery. He was in the bottom of a well all by himself. We see that when he was in prison, when he got. Convicted of something he didn't do, all alone where nobody saw the secret places. God works in obscurity. But yet we live in a world that says, don't be obscure. Don't live in a world of obscurity. One man, James McDonald, puts it this way He says, there's four things that the world is telling us, and over the last century the church has began to adopt this is frightening those four things are the first one of this now on the surface they're going to sound man that todd you're off why would you even bring this to us because i think it's become true in the church the first one is this that you're so unique now we would jump at that like wait wait you're you're saying we're not unique No, the world is telling us to be unique. How do we go from having a man and a woman, that is what marriage is, to now all of a sudden the church is beginning to embrace? No, this is kind of what marriage is. You see, being a man and a wife in a relationship, marital relationship, that that is special, but that's not real unique. That's God's call on our life. See, unique says be different. Stand out, be noticed. Why do you think we have Facebook? It's because we want to live in a world of uniqueness. Why do you think social media is so over the top? Why do you think we in America spend tons and tons of hours watching everyone else's life because they're so unique? No, so, no see, God called us. Yes, we're unique children of God, but th- that we don't need to be so unique in the world that we grab attention to ourselves. You see, there was nothing unique about David. He was a poor shepherd boy in a field all by himself. He did not stand out to anyone, he didn't stand out to his own father. The second one is this you're defined by what you do. Think about when you are with people, what do they tend to say? The first question is, what's your name? And then, what do you do? And so the world is telling us to, to be fine about what we do. But what God is saying, it doesn't matter what you do. It's who you belong to that matters. And yet we have adopted into the world, into the church, hey, it really matters about what you do. No. You see, to David, it didn't matter about what he did. The second one, you might flip out on this one. We live in this world that says God needs you. And we've adopted that in the church. Well, God needs me. I, I better show up because God can't accomplish what he wants to accomplish without me. Now we couch it and phrase it a lot different, but that's ultimately what we're saying. We really believe that God needs me. God does not need Todd. God does not need Todd to fulfill his desire for this church. God doesn't need Brother Frank. God doesn't need you. God will accomplish his purpose and his goals rather, whatever means he wants to do it. He used a donkey to do that. God's called us to be obedient to him, and out of our obedience, we're used by God, but God does not need us. Did you hear the difference? My obedience is how God uses me, but God does not need me. If, I don't, if I'm not obedient to God, he will accomplish his will and his goals with or without me. I get to be a part of that, but God doesn't need me for that. How do we know that? Look at Saul. The people of God really thought they needed Saul. And they abandoned God. And God said, That's not my way. That's not how I'm going to accomplish my goal for this nation. And the last one is this chase your dreams. The world tells us, Chase your dreams. The church tells us, Chase your dreams. Go after it with everything. Do you think David's dream was to be a shepherd boy? Do you think David's dreams came true? No, he wasn't chasing his dreams, he was chasing his God. Do you think Joseph was chasing his dreams when he got sold into slavery? No. And on and on and on we can go. Chase your God, not your dreams. But what's happened is your dreams have become your God's. And you wonder, and I wonder, why do I roam around aimlessly? Because there's something in us that says that dream, no matter if I accomplish it, get to it, it's never enough. But when we chase our God, the God, Yahweh, then we'll always have fulfillment. And yet, see, we live in this world that says, don't live, in, don't live in the obscurity. Be noticed. Be seen. Be flashy. Take notice so other people will take notice of you. When other people take notice of you, then you'll get promoted. No, just be faithful in what God has called you to do, what God has called me to do, and let Him pour out His blessings on you. Whether that means for the rest of your life, all you do is sweep the floor. Be the best floor sweeper that place has ever seen. But do it for the glory of God. The next one is this where God uses people and how God trains people is in the mundane or in the sameness. You see, David got up every morning, did the same routine every single day. He never took one day off. You don't get the weekends off when you are a farmer or a shepherd. It's not like, oh man, it's my Saturday. Go ahead, sheep, do what you want to do. No, every single day he got up and did the same thing over and over and over and over and over, and over again. Again. I think, man, how boring of a job could it be to be a shepherd? Uh, You think about all the animals in the animal kingdom. The sheep is the dumbest of them all. They're dumb. So it's not like David was out there and he had a herd of labradoodles or a, a, a herd of smart cats or dogs. He had a bunch of dumb sheep. He was not able to even entertain himself by teaching them tricks. It's not like, hey, hey, sheep, come here, sit, roll over, spin around. No, they just kind of aim around. Don't even know where they're going. They can't even care for themselves. Like, they don't know how to clean themselves. Like, think about that job for a moment. Like, it's not like David got up and said, oh, man, hey, sheep number 417, I'm going to teach him how to jump over the fence. Now, he went out there and thought, man, just please don't wander off. But he did it day after day after day after day after day. day. And God used that in his life to prepare him for something. You see, David was a shepherd boy that one day would be the shepherd over a whole nation. You see, it was his day after day after day taking care of the sheep that were dumb animals and caring for them and feeding them and combing out their hair, all that goes on with being a shepherd, that one day when he sat on the throne, he knew because of the sameness in his life, he knew how to shepherd people because he spent hours and hours and hours shepherding sheep. You see, this is what it says about David in Psalm 78, 72. With the upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. How did he have an upright heart and how did he have a guided hand as he shepherded God's people? Because he had an upright heart and a guiding hand with sheep on a hillside. You see, it says this in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He who is faithful with very little will what? Be faithful with much. You see, David was faithful with little as a shepherd boy. You, you see, you got to remember that David had seven older brothers that we'll see in the next chapter were always preparing for war. Now, that's the job I want. Sign me up for war. Don't sign me up to take care of shepherds. But we never see in... The, David's life, his character, that he wanted something else. He was content right where God had him in the sameness of life. And then the last one is this. God will always, in the pasture, you struggle to bring us to where God wants us. You, you see the first three I'm good with, man. Let me be alone. Let me do the same. Let me be... Out of the limelight and let me do the same thing over and over again. Man, as an introvert, that screams hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Leave me alone. Now, extroverts are like, man, that that sounds like hell on earth. I need people around me. I need high energy. But for an introvert, I'm like, man, those first three are great. But then this fourth one, I'm like, man, I'm not signing up for that. I don't want struggle. I don't like struggle. But God uses the struggle And struggles in our lives because he's preparing us for something. How do we know this in the life of David? You see, it wasn't always easy being a shepherd. That's hard work. You see, because the sheep are so vulnerable creatures and they're so dumb animals, they wander off and they go jumping off hills and they they, they just just do crazy things. But then the predator animals around them, they know, hey, that sheep, that's a dumb animal. I can go after it. And it says this. Turn over to chapter 17. We're going to get here more next week, but David's about to go fight Goliath. And he's going to say, hey, I know how to fight the Goliath because I sat on a hillside and I sat and I struggled and I struggled and I struggled. And he says this in verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail you because of him, the Philistine, the great giant. Your servant David will go and fight this Philistine. What? Like we're going to see next week, this giant was nine feet, nine inches tall. And this is a teenage boy that says, don't worry about it, King Saul. I got it. Well, how did David know he got it? Because of the struggle. I got one half-hearted amen. Let me say that again. David knew he could conquer the Philistine because of the struggle on the pasture. He said, I got this, King. And Saul said to David, you were not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. See, other people in our lives are going to come and speak to us and say, you can't do it. But we, with confidence, can say, I've been through the struggle, and I know I got it because the God of the universe will empower me to do it because I've already seen it. He's worked in my life through the struggle. And David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep. For his father. Catch the struggle. And when there came a what? A lion. And a bear. I took the lamb from the flock. And went after him. And struck him. And delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me. I caught him by his beard. And struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both Lions, plural, and bears, plural. Okay, wrap our heads around this. Teenage boy, lion, apex predator, the the highest predator uh, of the animal kingdom is coming into the pasture, and where does David go? David does not retreat. David pursues and grabs the lion by the beard and punches it in the face. He didn't take his sling out and whisk it out. He said, I grabbed him by the beard and killed him. That is a bad dude. I mean, any other amens? A bear. He did the same thing with a bear. And he said he did it with many lions and many bears. How come? Because he knew the struggle. You see, I don't think it started with lions and bears. I wonder if there was wolves that came first or stray dogs that came first or there was a lightning storm that came first. All the struggles that were preparing young David to face the lions and the bears. You see, David with confidence could say, man, I've been through the struggle and I've seen the mighty hand of God deliver me from the struggle and I can stand firm against the giant. And I just wonder, is it not in the struggle where young David learned how to sling his sling into the forehead of Goliath? If it wasn't in the struggle that he learned how to play the harp and the lyre so that someone would say him and send him in to the kingdom? It was in his struggle. Is it not there on the hillside, all alone, nobody watching, that he learned courage? Is it not there on that hillside that David learned how to be a shepherd and how he learned how to be a skillful warrior and to shepherd God's people? And yet, if you're like me at all, man, I want to skip the struggle. Now, I want to bypass the hard times of my life. I want to bypass the cancer. I want to bypass the infidelity. I want to bypass all those places that struggle comes. I, I want to say, man, get me through it. And yet it's on the hillside, in the struggle, that God is preparing a young boy to be the greatest king outside of Christ that Israel ever saw. which I believe this is the reason, these four things. If you turn back to Samuel chapter 16, 18. That it could be said about David. In the solitude, in the secrecy, in the sameness of life, and in the struggle, I believe this is where this young man, this servant of Saul, could say this about young David. Oh, but there is this one man. It said this, behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is what skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and of good presence. And what the Lord is with him. See, we'll spend time on those first five. But don't miss the last thing that somebody saw from a distance. God was with young David. All those hours and hours and hours in solitude on the mountainside. All those hours and hours and hours with nobody watching. All those hours and hours and hours of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And all those hours of the struggle this man could see and look at David and say, oh, I know a guy. And above it all, I can say this, God is with him. You see, if we're going to be a people of God, after God's heart, we must spend time in solitude. We must spend time in the secret places where nobody's watching we must spend time doing the same thing over and over again and what that often looks like for me is man i gotta read god's word over and over and over do the same thing and there's times that man it, if i'm honest it gets boring I, I get to numbers i'm like oh come on man like, let's just fast forward but god wants to do something with me as i spend time with god in his word even when it's boring I can't tell you every time that I pray, God doesn't have this hallelujah moment and descend in my car and the Shekinah glory blows all the cars around me. Sometimes just driving to work thinking, man, just don't let me get in a car wreck. The sameness over and over. And man, today I can say thank God for the struggles. Now, I don't want the struggles to keep coming but I'm confident they will. But man, I want to be known as a man that man God is with him. That's how I want to be known. You see, there was another man that lived thousands of years after King David. And he was going to be the greatest king that this world had ever seen. If you look at this king's life and how he lived, he lived in a place of solitude. He lived communing with the Father over and over and over and over and over again. He spent time where nobody noticed. You see, his public ministry didn't start for the first 30 years of his life. Nobody knew who this king was. He just ragtag poor carpenter boy. and He did the same thing. Over and over and over again. How many tables and chairs did that young carpenter make? Where well, nobody noticed. And yet this king faced a struggle that you and i will never have to face you see this king his name is king jesus spent time on a cross isolated alone by himself his greatest disciples fled from him and yet he's able to commune with god in the solitude He's able to commune with God as he hangs in obscurity. He's able to commune with God as he dies. That's an ongoing death for hours. You talk about sameness. And yet he was able to commune with God through the struggle of the cross. So that you and I could have the confidence that God will do in us what he wants to do in us. The same confidence that young David had on the field that day right after he got anointed as king. Okay, God, if you said it, if you said, if you've anointed me to be a king, that I'm going to be the king, and yet I'm going to live open-handed. You do with my life, however you want to do with my life. But I know, for I know, for I know, that you'll make me king. And that's how God does it. And I wonder for us, church, this morning, where we're at do we spend time in solitude with our own thoughts our own feelings our own chaos or is it in those moments we begin to spend time with God in the solitude that God begins to reveal things in our lives that must be changed because they're contrary to the will of God and that's when we put on the music Like when God really presses into my heart and it really starts to become what we call convictions, we turn on the music because we don't want repentance. I'm the only one. So I'd ask you this week, spend time by yourself, alone with God, and let God speak to you. You see, it was on that hillside, alone, with no sound, That David could hear the words of God, the voice of God, because there were no distractions. And I wonder for us, church, if there's somewhere in each of us that we want to be noticed. We don't want to live a life life of secrecy where nobody knows us. And we sure as heck don't want to live a life of the same thing over and over and over again. And there's no way we want to do struggle. But as we see in the life of young David, this is the turning point of the book. This is the turning point of David's life. Because from this moment on, David in chapter 17 on, he's going to rise to power. It's going to be said in this next chapter that it's said that Saul had his thousands, but David had his ten thousands. You see, this is the moment, these moments on the hillside is what changed it all for young David. And I wonder, church, if these moments for us at Pau's Chapel could be the moments that God changes all of it for us. You see, the title of the message was a Servant. But the real title is, How God Develops Servants. Are you a servant today? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, lead us, guide us. Allow us to spend alone time with you. Allow us to live in obscurity. Allow us, God, to do the same thing over and over again. And allow us, God, to walk through the struggle so that it would be said about us individually, all that is a man of God. And then let it be said about us corporately, that is a church that follows the heart of God. Your son Jesus did that for us. And God, we... If we do not know him today, then our life is meaningless. Our life is pointless. But Jesus, you live this life for us. A perfect, sinless life. So that we could have life and have life to the full. I pray if there's anyone here that does not know that. That today would be the day through your Holy Spirit you draw them to yourself. And they would surrender their will and their lives over to your care. And that they would, from this day forward, and for each of us this day forward, would live open-handedly and say, God, do with my life as you please. And in the moments, God, we want to close our hands to your will and to your direction and your guidance, God, I I pray for the Holy Spirit. It's in conviction and conviction fast that would pry our hands open to say, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. So lead us, Lord Jesus, to be a church that's marked as a people of God after the heart of God. We are yours, Lord Jesus, as your sweet promise is so true. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus. Work in us, Lord Jesus. Amen.